does humility mean? It's hot outside. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I am humility. Very good. <laughs> Say humility. Humility. I am best at my iPad. I, I'm best at Angry Birds, and I win all the levels all the time, but sometimes I don't. You told me you didn't play video games. But I play. I only play them on my iPad and Wii Pad. Okay. When I say the word humility, what do you think oh, of? I just learned that. You did? Putting others first before yourself. Can you give me an example? Uh-huh. Like, um... If you were up on this really cool ride and you've been waiting for a really long time and there's this little boy at the end of the ride who hasn't gone on any a single ride in his entire life. And you would let him go? Yeah, you could let him go instead of caring about yourself. If you're doing really well at something, you're not like, oh, I'm the best. You can't do anything right. You gotta have humility and like be like, oh, sweet, good job, guys. Just I like that. Definitely. I feel like humility. It like someone says so like unresponsible things to you. They say that, hey, you're not that fast. That is really harsh to them. You just put them under, like, you just put them under the bridge and slid them away. Mm. And then I think of a nice kid that does not have that would say, um, you are really good at stuff. May you please be my friend? That's awesome. What did you say that humble meant? Let's build a wall. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Israel, you're my favorite person. I just decided that today. You're my favorite person. <laughs> ah, that truly is uh, awesome, isn't it? What a, what a variety of emotions here. We're taken to really think about what we live for with a song, and then we go to the other extreme with that. So I don't know what you're going to expect over the next 35 minutes or so, but it's going to be somewhere in between, I hope. Um, but good morning. Welcome to Central, week number four of a series entitled With All Due Respect. And today I'm going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 17 from verse 22 as we just uh, tackle the idea of winning battles and losing wars. Winning battles and losing wars. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 17 from verse 22. If you grabbed a Bible from in, uh, from just in our auditorium here, you can turn to page 984. Now, we started in week number one with Steve and I just bringing a reminder to us about what the end goal of the church in the world is, and that is simply we live to proclaim peace, and that's not the absence of conflict, but rather to establish the rule and reign of God on earth just as it is in heaven, and we got a glimpse of what that looked like as reconciliation happened. In week number two, we went into a passage in John 9 where we just looked at the importance of the value of compassion. And we said, look, we live in a two-party nation. For as long as we live in a two-party nation, there are going to be moments where we have to pick sides. 
If you're involved in public office, there are going to be moments where you're going to need to mobilize your base. If you're involved in a needs-based interest group, there's going to be a moment where you're going to need to get your message out there. That's just the way it is. It's not wrong. It's just reality. And we encourage you, hey, when that happens, just make sure you don't find fault and point fingers. Just make sure that you don't paint uh, people as villains. That's not the way that Jesus would do it. Try and do it the Jesus way. Last week, Steve encouraged us to practice courage. And again, if you're in public office, if you're taking on issues, sometimes the most courageous thing to do is not to take a stand on truth. Sometimes the most courageous thing to do is to stand up for people. That's what Jesus did. And all too often in the midst of a, of a culture war, that's not the popular thing to say or to do. Well, today we're looking at the value of humility. And uh, we're going to point out a very simple truth that uh, humility is really important before the exercise of any authority. And we're going to see how Jesus demonstrated and practiced humility before he demonstrated and practiced authority. So let's have a look at this text, Luke chap- uh, Matthew rather, chapter 17 from verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. And then you'll see from verse 24 on the screen, if you haven't got a Bible. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the tax collectors, or the collectors rather, of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. Who do you think? What do you think, Simon? He asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. And so the story ends. We've been looking over the last few weeks at the the whole idea that, hey, in a culture war, we're always faced with an either-or choice. And in here, we see that in two different ways. But what strikes me as I read this is this idea that Jesus is going to pay the temple tax. Now, there's some debate about whether it's civil taxes or, or temple tax. I believe it's the temple tax, and I'll spare you all the laborious details. But the reality of the conversation between Peter and Jesus is, Jesus has the option not to, but he chooses to do it, and that's the reason he gives, not to cause offense. Now, the word here basically is the word scandalizo, which basically means not necessarily to offend, but it means to put a snare in the way of someone. It basically means to cause someone to stumble. So the reason Jesus pays, even though he doesn't have to, is because he doesn't want to cause anyone to trip. Now, anybody vaguely familiar with the Gospels, and even with Matthew, would start to scratch their head at this because, as we already see in Matthew 13, 57, they've already taken offense at him. 
Matthew 13 is that passage where Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth. Quite possibly the Luke 4 passage, but Matthew removes the context, so we don't really know. He's just there in the synagogue in his, own ta- in his hometown, that's in Nazareth. And basically, he's obviously done something because it's not the Pharisees here, the religious leaders. It's the everyday Nazarites who basically look at him and say, who is this guy? Yeah, he's the illegitimate kid, you know? Joseph's not really the dad God is, you know, that guy. And and it says there that they pointed to his brothers, they pointed to his sisters. And and listening to what he said, in contrast to where he came from, they took offense at him. The same word. Moreover, in Matthew 15, Jesus has just talked about the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees, he talked about the parables, he's done a number of things, and then the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you really blew it there. Because do you know that the Pharisees were offended, same word, when they heard this? So help me out, Jesus. Why don't you want to offend them now? See, it's one of the difficult things of navigating a culture war, isn't it? Knowing when to speak and when to be silent, right? How many of you have asked yourself, quite a few of you judging by the emails we're getting, how many of you have asked yourself, okay, Craig, the truth is really important, so when do we stand up for the truth in all of this thing, right? What we're going to discover in this passage is the battle for truth is, is secondary to the war for souls, The battle for truth is secondary to the war for souls. Imagine you're at work and uh, a new regulation comes in and tells you that you cannot bring your Bibles to read in work. That's your First Amendment right, is it not? What would you do? Should you stand up for truth, for what is right? Even if it causes someone to take offense at you, Or should you not? I didn't make that up. That's an issue that somebody in our congregation is battling with right now. They've just been told that they cannot bring their Bible, First Amendment right, into work with them. What do they do? What do you do? Do you speak? Even if it will cause offense? Jesus did, Matthew 13, Matthew 15. But there are certain times, aren't there, when he doesn't. Why? See, all too often we think about this cultural thing and we think that Jesus had it really easy. I love this text because it shows us Jesus didn't have it easy. Not only was he fighting, okay, this culture war between the Sadducees and the Pharisees who hated him, hated each other, and the only thing the Pharisees and the Sadducees had in common was they hated Jesus more than they hated each other. That's week number one. But then what we're going to discover in this text is Jesus wasn't even just battling that. Jesus was a rabbi. And as a rabbi, he lived off the generosity of his own supporters. He was kind of like your your missionary who basically had to raise funds in order to feed not just himself, but his entire crew, his entire band. By the way, that's where a number of commentators think uh, the, um, the gifts of the wise men, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, would have been very helpful. See, Jesus also had to navigate through issues thinking, what would my supporters think? I wonder how many of you here actually support ministries and have changed your giving up or down on the basis of whether those ministries have done something that you like or don't like. 
Well, I know that happens because you write to me as well. (laughs) I love this passage because this is it right here. And yet for some reason, okay, Jesus decides that in the heat of the battle, humility lays the foundation. In this case, for the effective use of authority later on. See, sometimes the worst thing that we can do is to speak too soon. To fight the battle for truth. Because in fighting the battle for truth, we lose the war for souls. That's the battle that Jesus is facing in church. That's the battle that we're facing today. And the danger in this nation at this point in time is that we prioritize the wrong war. The war is not for truth. The war is for souls. Jesus laid down his life for people to experience the rule and the reign of God. And he prioritized that at every juncture. And and on this occasion, that meant I'm going to hold my tongue even though I am right. I'm going to hold my tongue even though I have the rights of a son. Now, when we look at this, I believe that there are three lessons, three kind of guidelines that we can look and we can grab from this passage to help us discern, should I speak or should I hold my tongue? Should I act on the rights of a son or a daughter of God or should I live out my servant calling? This text is incredibly helpful with this. And it begins with this idea that Jesus doesn't want to cause offense. He practices humility rather than authority because he doesn't want to stumble out of the blocks. He doesn't want this decisive season of his life and his ministry to start out the wrong way. Now, to understand this, What I'm going to do from my time is I'm just basically going to paint you a picture of the culture at the time to help you understand what's going on. Uh, My struggle with doing this message is that there is so much culture in this text that in order to basically exegete the text, I basically need to take you back into the culture. So I'm going to do that. And what you're going to see is that Jesus was a genius. And that what Jesus exemplified is what God is calling us to experience. So you've got this idea that he practices humility because he doesn't want to get this decisive phase of his ministry off on the wrong foot. Now the tension that Jesus has got in this part of the story is this. Either participate or protest. Remember, the the collectors of the temple tax come to Peter and they ask a question that assumes an affirmative answer. They come to him and say, your rabbi is going to pay, right? And Peter responds by saying, right, he will. 
Now, what is happening here is already being established, being established in verse 22, and verse 22 basically says, when they are gathered together in Galilee. Now, it's a little bit odd because they've been together already in Galilee, or they've been together because of the transfiguration story. That is an incredibly important passage, the transfiguration, for this part of the story. Because in this moment, the disciples witness the glory and the majesty of Jesus. And that is far greater than anything of the old covenant. Chapter 16 and verse 21 has already told us that Jesus is turning his head towards Jerusalem. Before he goes, however, the disciples are given that privilege into seeing the glory of Christ through the transfiguration. And then we get this verse in verse 22 that says, after they gathered together in Galilee. This is basically Matthew telling us, okay, folks, now we're coming to the Jerusalem section. And what I want you to hold on to is the fact that this Jerusalem section is kind of bracketed by the issue of money and coins. Verse 24 then continues that after the disciples had gathered, Jesus had gathered the disciples together in Jerusalem. Why is that important for our question? Well, very simply, that as we know from the Luke narratives when Jesus was 12, they all went to Jerusalem in a group as a convoy. When that would happen, the temple tax would be collected. And so the collectors of the temple tax would go around to the groups of people that were traveling together to Jerusalem, and they would collect the temple tax. These collectors weren't rabbis. They were just collecting the money on the part of the group. Now, when they got to Jerusalem, what do you think they did? Week number one, they went into the temple, and they changed the money. Now, there was a great deal of dissension on this temple tax. You had the Sadducees who believed that this temple tax could be collected. And when it was collected from males over the age of 20 on the basis of Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. And again, if you download the sermon notes or if you're in a C6 group, you'll have the the full list of scriptures here all the way through to help you. But the Sadducees interpreted Exodus 30, 11 through 16 as saying that this collection, this temple collection should be collected every year and it went towards the Talmud, the daily sacrifices in the temple. The Pharisees disagreed. The Pharisees said, no, the, the daily Talmud, the sacrifices in the temple, everybody enjoys the, the daily sacrifices. The payment for that needs to come from the, the general offering in the temple, not, not from the temple tax. That is for the benefit of the males over the age of 20 since they're paying for it. Then there were another group called the Essenes. The Essenes were this kind of sectarian dissident group who looked at the religious system and said, this thing is totally and utterly corrupt. But the only problem they had is Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, clearly say that a temple tax should be paid for males over the age of 20. So what they did is they looked at verse 11 and they reinterpreted the text and said, this is a once in a lifetime collection. So guys, if you're as fed up with the system as we are and don't want to contribute to the injustice and the sin and the unrighteousness that is a part of it, pay for it once and come and join us. So they reinterpret the whole thing. 
So the reason that Jesus is asked this question is in the first instance because there's a whole load of debate about what is the right thing to do. Moreover, Matthew Henry in his commentary points out that the further you get away from Jerusalem, so in the Galilee region, the less likely the males over the age of 20 were to pay for it because they were totally dissatisfied with, communal, uh, with temple life as it is. So Jesus has got a, Jesus has got a problem here. His problem is that there are so many different opinions on what was right with the temple tax. And he's also got a problem because he lived off the support of the people who followed him. They didn't like the temple tax either. So if he's going to pay this thing, then how's he going to do it? Because he can't alienate his own support base, can he? And if he doesn't pay this thing, what's really interesting is, that the, is what would happen. Basically, if Jesus would have protested, then what would have happened is the collectors, who are not rabbis, would basically have made a note of the fact that Jesus hadn't paid, and the next time that they would have gone to Jerusalem, there would have been a hearing where Jesus would have stated his case. And Jesus could have very well, as his conversation with Peter points out, shown how on the basis of Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, I am basically involved in my father's ministry, living off support. Basically, if you take money off me, you are taking money off people twice. The rabbis had exemption. The priests had exemption for this reason. The Samaritans never paid. Jesus had a very strong case and everybody knew it. So why didn't he protest? Simple, because the case is going to be heard in Jerusalem the next time he's there. Where's he going? To Jerusalem. What's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem is that he will be tried and he will be found guilty. But if he'd have paid this tax, he wouldn't have been on trial for instituting a means of access to God that went through him. He would have been on trial for the issue of taxation. Temple tax. Where church money goes. And guess what? He's already offended them. We already know from Matthew chapter 12 they want him dead. So Jesus knows. <laughs> I, I may be right, but I'm going to lose this one. Is Jesus afraid of losing an argument? No, this is the point. If in the hearing, Jesus would have been found to be liable for the tax, which is what would have happened, he would have had to have acknowledged his wrong by bringing a sin offering and making a sin offering in the temple. Folks, Jesus went to Jerusalem not to make a sin offering, but to be a sin offering. For this reason, he says, no. No. I won't do this. I'm not going to do this because I know that I am going to be a sin offering. I'm not there to make a sin offering. And on the basis of truth, on the basis of my calling, I will not win this battle because I will end up losing the war. Only someone who was perfect could pay the price for sin. There's another element to this too. Everybody in Capernaum knew that he had a reason not to pay it. And Jesus knows that if he goes through and protests, 
And they basically find him guilty, which is what they would have done. The tax collectors, those collectors would have had to have come to Jesus and collecting, collected money, extorted money off a righteous person in an unrighteous way, which would have meant that they would have had to have made a sin offering in the temple. They would have therefore walked and stumbled into sin. There's an awful lot going on here, isn't there? Have I still got you? Jesus says no for two reasons. I'm not going to open my mouth and win this battle for truth because my battle is not to make a sin offering but to be one. Secondly, Jesus says I'm not going to protest here for a very simple reason that my protestation will make the weak and the vulnerable who are are around me, the people in Capernaum, uh, basically put them in a position of being labeled as sinners and I'm not going to do that. Those of you familiar with the Bible will know about 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. What do we do with food offered to idols? Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 verse 13 says this. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Paul's point is exactly the same. Those who pride themselves on being strong should display their spiritual maturity by doing everything they can to avoid bringing spiritual downfall to a brother or to a sister. As Steve said last week, there is a wrong way to be right. So Jesus says, I'm going to pay this thing because I'm going to pay for sin. Therefore, I am going to allow truth to defend itself for the sake of waging a war on sin that grips all of humanity. Let me ask you this. If you have been involved in a culture war lately, have you thought about the impact of your words on the weak and the vulnerable around you? If you've been involved in a a culture war lately, have you thought about the ramifications of what you say and of what you do on the people who listen to you. One of the worst things about social media is it is making what heroes and it is giving people courage in the virtual world that they do not hold in the real world. They're putting out statements online and they have no idea about the damage they're doing to the weak and the vulnerable. They are trying to win a battle of truth when all they are doing is making us lose the war for souls. We have to be careful with social media. Now, it's only just beginning. The reality then is avoiding sin is more important than winning debates, even when we're right. And that sin is not necessarily our own, it's the sin that others are led into. Now the second part of this story continues this. The first challenge then, does he pay or does he protest? And he pays. (laughs) But what is fascinating here is the way that he pays demonstrates that Jesus hasn't forgotten his end game. He hasn't forgotten his end game. Now, the either or that we have in this part is, as children of God, we can can act either on the rights that we have as sons and daughters of God, or we can act 
on the basis of the responsibility that we have as God's servants to take his message of reconciliation to the world. And so in the conversation with Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, listen, do you think sons of the king need to pay the tax? Peter says, no. The obvious point that Jesus is making as the son of the king of kings I don't need to pay it either. But Peter, I didn't come to act like a son. I came to live like a servant. And therefore, I will pay. And again, the way that he pays demonstrates that Jesus has a fine eye for navigating his way through that culture war. And he does it by remembering that even though he has the rights of sonship, he has come to live as a servant. What does Philippians 2, 5 through 11 tell us? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, Jesus participated now because he realized that provided the perfect platform on which protest could be made later on. Jesus' issue was with the temple, and the temple tax was an extension of it. Jesus demonstrates his ability to discern between a downstream symptom and an upstream issue. Jesus demonstrates that he knows where the true battle is, and it's not with the collectors in Galilee. It is with the leaders and with the temple and its corruption in Jerusalem. And so he pays now in order to make protest later. Now, in week number one, we know where the protest was, right? Remember what he did? Marched into that temple and he drove out those money changers. See, the money changers were taking the temple tax that was being collected in all of the regions and were putting it into the temple offering. The coins they would have used, by the way, are what you would call Tyrian status. Tyrian status. They're from the country of Tyre. Tyre was an arch enemy of Israel. The coins would have had an image on them, one of two images. The first image, the most popular image, was that of an eagle with uh, palm trees in the background. You turn the coin around, it would have the picture of the emperor, and then it would have the words engraved on there, Tyre the Holy. The second coin that was popular was of, uh, looks like uh, dolphins in the water, that kind of thing, with someone standing on these fish, uh, kind of surfing them, and it was a pagan god of the sea. On the back of the coin, again, with those words, Tyre the Holy. 
From this brief description, you realize why people came to Jesus and, and basically said, hey, what do we do with this coin? This coin broke the first and the second commandment, and yet the temple institution in Jerusalem loved them for a very simple reason. This coin that was used in Galilee had 92% silver in its properties. The Antiochian silver coin had 75% of silver property. Which coin do you think they went for? They went for the coin with the higher property, silver, the Tyrian coin. It was valuable. So when Jesus protested in the temple and drove everyone out, the temple lost its ability in that moment to grab something that was really important to them, money. So Jesus pays earlier to protest the corruption in the system later. But he's still got a problem, hasn't he? How does he pay for this thing without actually alienating his own base? How does he actually speak up for the truth later without losing people earlier? See, Jesus knows his end game, but he's still got a problem of reminding all of the people that were pro him and anti-Jerusalem that he hasn't forgotten the plot. A number of people have asked whether I've forgotten the plot in doing a series like this. I want to show you, we haven't forgotten the plot. But there's a certain way that things need to be done in order to remember what the end game is. So how does Jesus do it? He looks at Peter and he says, Peter, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go fishing. Peter will thought, good Jesus, got that. Oh no, Peter, I want you to do it a different way. I don't want you to use your nets. Peter used nets, we know that, because he left his nets when he was called. I want you to take a line with a hook. Nowhere in the scriptures do we read of Peter fishing with a line and a hook. Jesus wants Peter to change his methodology. Why? You would use a line with a hook in the Sea of Galilee to catch catfish. Catfish were not allowed to be eaten by Jews because of the gills. These catfish are currently caught in East Africa, and in East Africa today, they catch this fish, this catfish, with a line, and they use tin foil on the end of the line. Do you know why they use tinfoil? Because this type of catfish goes for bright silver objects. Peter, I want you to go fishing, but I want you to do it differently. I want you to take a line that you're not necessarily used to using, and I want you to catch a fish that you're not really used to eating. And then I want you to open the mouth of this fish and and you're going to see that the coin is there. And again, the Tyrian slatter, the size of the coin, wouldn't have gone down into the fish's belly. It would have rested there in its mouth. Open the mouth, take the coin. Oh, and guess what, Peter? You know as well as I do, Mosaic law says that money lost in a fish like this, which is basically not kosher, is actually the property of the people who find it. And you can take the money that is now ours, didn't come from our support base, and you can actually give it to those tax collectors, and we're good, we're done. I don't know whether it was a laugh or a cry, but I think that 
Jesus, do you understand what Jesus is doing this moment? He's ministering in an area where you've got a pagan god of the sea. And Jesus demonstrates to his disciples that the only God of the sea, the only God over nature, is the God that he worships. His lordship even extends over that. It's totally remarkable. And so basically what Jesus does in this part of the story is he demonstrates that he hasn't forgotten his end game. His end game was to go to a cross and to die, to be a sin offering, to eradicate the abuse of the temple, and to make it possible for people to access God through him and him alone. That's why he was going to Jerusalem. He knew his end game. Let me ask you this Do you know your end game? What issues are really important to you right now? Issues in this culture war. You've got to know your end game. In this season of life, Jesus' end game was to go to the cross and to die, and he was about to do nothing, even defend the truth, if it meant that defending the truth would mean he could win a battle but lose the war for souls. What issues are important to you, and do you know your end game? Do you know what God has called you to do? Because knowing what God has called you to do is essential for knowing whether you open your mouth or you keep it silent. Because church, we have to realize something. God can defend his own honor. He doesn't need us to do it. What he wants us all to do is to recognize that we have been placed in this world a part of the body of Christ not to wage a battle in standing up for truth but recognizing that sometimes, and most of the time, dare I say, that we are here waging a war for souls. And nothing tops that. And yet, for some of us, God calls us to stand on issues. He calls us to stand up for truth. How do you do that if that is you? Remembering what that end game is and not causing the weaker brothers and sisters around you to stumble. You see, the real point in all of this is the calling on the church is to put others first. Put others first. That's why Matthew 17, 22, gathering them together in Jerusalem, and then he does something strange, right? He just says, hey, I want you to know something. We are going to Jerusalem. He tells them the end game. We are going to Jerusalem because I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And rather than rejoicing at the fact that Jesus is going to live even though he dies, they are basically in mourning because he dies. And through the stories that are weaved in after this point, Jesus reminds people, hey, this is all for you. This is for those collectors that I I don't want to put in a position of having to make a sin offering, I want to be a sin offering for them. This is even for people like, dare we say, Judas. See, the last time we hear about the coins is in Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, and it's a a verse that basically says that Judas, having received 30 pieces of what? Silver, same coins. 30 pieces of silver from where? The temple treasury. Realizes that what he's done was wrong. And what does he do in that moment? 
Remember Peter one day said, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you into the very ends of the earth. Jesus says, really, Peter? I tell you, before the cock crows three times, you're gonna deny me. Jesus, I'll never do that. We'll see. Matthew chapter 10 says, you deny me before men and I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Cock crowed three times. Peter fled a bitter man. The difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter knew that in Jesus there was forgiveness. Judas, however, felt there was no way forward. And so what did he do? He pronounced judgment on the corrupt temple system by taking the dirty blood money and throwing it back into the offering. And what we realize is this judgment on sin has been accomplished once and for all. The system that has been corrupt has now been bypassed and people access God, not through a religious system, but nothing other than the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Jesus lived his life by always putting other people first church that's what we need to do in the heat of a battle in the heat of a culture war we need to remember that humility doesn't feel like a right that will treat us better than Jesus would have done And what we need to remember is that there's a perfect contrast here for religious institutions that want to do the right thing, that pride themselves on the truth. And that is the contrast, not between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That is the contrast between the Essenes and Jesus. You see, the Essenes saw the corruption of the temple system and stepped back and reinterpreted the text to suit the righteous. They reinterpreted the text to suit a dissident culture that basically said it is more than legitimate in the heat of a culture war to take a step back and not get involved. Reinterpret the text to support that. But Jesus doesn't model that. Jesus, on the other hand, sees the abuse of the temple system. He steps in and he redirects temple worship to himself in order to save the unrighteous. That's what we're supposed to do. We need to remember that humility in the heat of a culture war asks us to do nothing more than to follow Jesus' example. To remember that before the exercise of any authority that we may take, humility is important. To remember that there will always be the temptation to speak. But before we speak, we remember that God has given us one mouth and two ears. We ask God and say, God, what's my end game? What are you calling me to do, to stand up for, to be a part of here? And God, help me be the type of believer that will prioritize winning the war, even if it means I don't fight this battle. You parents know all about that. You cannot fight every battle, otherwise your home is a war zone. What God says is, listen, the way you raise your kids is the way I raise mine. Don't fight every battle, but know your end game and fight 